0: Our fathers bled at Valley Forge. The snow was red with blood. Their faith was warm at Valley Forge. Their faith was brotherhood. Wasn't that a time? Wasn't that a time? A time? That a, time? a time to try. Hi, this is Alan Chartok. I'm delighted to be in conversation today with longtime music journalist Jesse Jarno. Jesse Jarno is the author of the new book, Wasn't That a Time? The Weavers, the Blacklist, and the Battle for the Soul of America. Welcome, Jesse. Thank you so much for having me. Well, there's nobody who's more important to this radio station than Pete Seeger. I've interviewed Fred Hellerman for an hour. I certainly have done many interviews with Pete. And Pete was a great friend of this radio station. And Lee, of course, has been a big part of all this. And I believe our Wanda Fisher actually interviewed interviewed the fourth weaver, Ronnie, in her work. I must say that it is such a great book. And I think everybody ought to read it because, really, you're no patsy. I mean, you clearly had a soft spot for these folks, but you also we were able to sort of look into what the dynamics of the whole thing were. So, Jesse, maybe we could start by asking you, why did you uh, name it Wasn't That a Time?
1: I named the book Wasn't That a Time because it was, you know, such an incredibly powerful and important Weaver song that was written at this juncture in American history where it was observing this very dark moment where kind of, you know, the blacklists were coming in and loyalty oaths were coming in. And it was the song that got them hauled in front of the House Un-American committee. And it just seemed so completely resonant with their story and what's going on right now that it was just a, you know, a perfect springboard back into their history. So do you see a tie
0: between what was going on then? People were going to jail, people were committing suicide. Do you see a relationship between then and what's going on now?
1: Oh, of course. So I was a childhood Weavers fan and a childhood Pete Seeger fan and had started thinking about the idea of writing a Weavers book. And my publisher, who's also a Weavers fan, was was into it as well, my editor. Except there wasn't something that was quite doing it for him. But then, then... the election happened in 2016, and just suddenly this vast smoking divide down the middle of the country seemed so prevalent yet again. And their story is such that there's so many parallels. I mean, it's, it's really the same cast of characters, just a few generations iterated down the line, where you're seeing, you know, literal connections between, you know, you see Roy Conchob, who's, you know, Donald Trump's mentor. It's the same people in a lot of places. So it's a parallel, but it's also just a continuation of the same thing, which is also awful to realize. But, but then you have the Weavers you know, singing these glorious harmonies in the middle of it about hope and global unity and you know, progressive ideas that are just beautifully optimistic and just a wonderful thing to be able to, to lean on even now in the 21st century. Well,
0: here's the deal. You know, the Fire Island kids, you and I have that common heritage. The Fire Island kids would sit around my friend Johnny Lipsky's living room, and we would sing all the Weaver's songs, of course. However, wasn't that a time was a tough song to sing? Oh, Uh, yeah. That is not an easy song. And I know that Pete and Lee were very, you know, happy about it, but it was a very difficult song. It was not the usual three-chord wonder (laughs) that we all liked so much.
1: Right, I mean, and that's you know that's a thing that people actually kind of forget about the Weavers. I think you know they're they're thought of as this folk pop band with really an emphasis on that folk part, where you know you can sit around a, a campfire or you know a back porch or something, strumming these songs. But then there's also this very strong pop aspect to them, where the, the songs are complex and do have these structures and and real intent, musical intent behind them. That's more than just oh, we're adapting an old folk song that we learned from an old record. There's, you know, there's real artistic intent and integrity here. And Wasn't, wasn't That a Time is, you know, it's not your easy rhyming song. Brave men who died at Gettysburg
0: Now lying soldiers' graves, but there they stem.
1: The slavery tied in them. The faith was saved, wasn't that a time Was actually one of the things i was shocked to discover in research is to hear somebody covering that song it's not a song you hear covered very often but i actually found a recording of uh, a very young jerry garcia uh, of no uh, the grateful dead uh, <laughs> performing that song when he was 19 years old at a birthday party
0: <laughs> he was a good musician yeah, uh, absolutely. So, so when the Weavers got started, as you know, I don't have to tell you, but mm-hmm. Pete told me any number of times that they would be playing down in the village and somebody would feed them hamburgs. He always said hamburgs <laughs> as opposed to hamburgers. And then the guy came out and said, you're eating too many hamburgs, so we're going to pay you. <laughs> but they had a hard time because they were lefties and you know, basically accused communists of getting... Senna, their hit record, and then Irene Goodnight, which we all sing to this day everywhere, every time. And along came Gordon Jenkins, right? Mm-hmm. He came to hear them, and he said, I'll get it done. And he put these hokey—you mentioned the complexity of the song. He put these hokey strings and, <laughs> you know, trumpets behind them. Of course, you know, the Weavers at Carnegie Hall and the Weavers on Tour, the two seminal records, had no such thing. But the ones that went popular, Jenkins backed them up and did it for him. What do you know about Jenkins? Do you know anything about him at all, whether or not he he was a lefty, too? And is that what happened there?
1: He was someone who I really didn't know a lot about when I started this project. And then diving into it, just discovering what an enormous figure he was in American music in, in that period, in the 40s and 50s. He was more or less apolitical, it seems like. I think Fred Hellerman once said, I'm not sure Gordon even knew who the president was. And he was reacting strictly to the Weavers' music. He ended up at the village vanguard where that story about the Hamburgs took place right, and just fell in love with their harmonies and their just their energy. And I think that I mean that's another aspect of the Weavers that I think gets downplayed a lot is that they had this vitality to them that it's sort of a group charisma that I think comes through when they sang together. And you know, I'm using the present tense. you know, when you listen to their records, I think it still comes through. That in a weird way kind of reminds me almost of like the Beatles, of just like that thing that happens when their voices stack, where there's just something that's communicated that the Beatles could be singing, she loves you, but there's some other message coming through. And I think that something is similar about the Weavers. And I think that's what Gordon Jenkins was reacting to is just that pop instinct that they were so much greater than the sum of their parts
0: that's so fascinating that you tell me that story i love that story because i've always wondered about that now you have a certain amount of information that i didn't have jesse jarno you know here are these four people but before the four of them were there at least a couple of them certainly lee hayes and pete were in the almanac singers and pete told me that lee hayes got all ticked off because he thought that the Almanac singers would rehearse on stage as opposed to properly rehearsing their music. What do you know about that?
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, that sounds like a Lee comment, if I've ever heard one. Lee, Lee could kvetch about anything. Also, not ironically, Lee not a fan of rehearsal himself. But the Almanac singers were this sort of rotating group of musicians, where Pete Seeger and Lee Hayes were the center pretty much at the very beginning, along with Woody Guthrie nice. and and some others. And they were kind of this sort of, you'd call them a collective now or something like that where they're, you know, always rotating and they were just out playing on what they called the subway circuit, which was, you know, all these different benefits and charities and and things and working to expand their repertoire and write new songs every day. So the idea of, I mean, I think they were, you know, they're more or less writing songs on stage in addition to rehearsing songs on stage. And they were very different than what the Weavers became. The Almanac singers were explicitly political.
0: They say in Harlan County there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on? Which side are you Oh, workers, can you stand it? Oh, tell me how you can. Will you be a lousy scab or will you be a man? Which side are you on?
1: Which side are you on? That was the idea behind them. And the notion of the Weavers when Pete Seeger and Lee Hayes put them together in 1948 was to have a tighter version of the Almanac singers that focused on popular music. They weren't attempting to sing the headlines and... You know, the almanac singers would sing these timely songs that would then, you know, they had an expiration date. (laughs) You know, the topic of the song would disappear like an Internet meme, and they would have to, you know, come up with a new song. So part of the idea about the Weavers is that they were focusing on these timeless songs that weren't dependent on outside context.
0: So, Jesse Jarno, how did the four of them get together, actually? We know how other groups get together. Some producer says, okay, Peter, Paul, and Mary, they're all good. you are going to put you all in a room, and, and that's how they get started. But in this case, how did these four come together?
1: Ironically, I'll, I'll insert here, Peter and Mary actually met at a Weavers concert <laughs> for the first time at uh, one of the reunion shows in Carnegie Hall, and then later grouped together by a producer, The Weavers came together. Lee and Pete met first. They were both attempting to create labor songbooks, and a mutual colleague introduced them, and they decided to join their efforts, and that's what led to the Almanac Singers, and that was before World War II. After World War II, Pete Seeger's idea was to create this organization called People's Songs, which was sort of this one-stop for topical music. You know, if you wanted a song about atomic energy, you want a song about, you know, the Food and Drug Administration, wherever you want, they they had files of songs. And that became this huge organization with a pool of lots of different musicians rotating out for different causes. It was sort of like the Almanac Singers expanded into into this giant multi-level organization. And both Fred Hellerman and Ronnie Gilbert kind of got pulled into their musical circle through people's songs And until, you know, the different combinations of musicians from that group, you know, sort of rotated through until the four of them ended up singing together. And I think there's a great quote. I think it's from Ronnie where she talks about how the first time the four of them sang together, it was actually in a group of a much larger group of maybe, you know, a dozen people or something like that. But she said that they could hear their four voices kind of locked into each other in the middle Mm. of this sort of larger chaos And then that was sort of the core. They recognized that and decided to sort of build on it.
0: I want to ask you about each of them a little bit. We'll go to Pete a little later, but let (laughs) me start with Fred Hellerman. That's an interesting guy. I interviewed him for quite a while, and I tell you, it was a little bit disappointing. I felt, you know, he didn't have the charisma of a Pete. So I'm wondering how he got into it. One of the theories is, of course, that he was a terrific musician.
1: Yeah, he was a terrific musician. Fred was, you know, young and willing and excited to be playing music in this post war period where kind of conservative forces were starting to sort of push in at the edges and the people's songs were excited about especially excited about any young musicians they could pull in. And Fred was a, you know, a kid from a progressive background in Brooklyn who also had a lot of interest in pop music at the time and a really just a big ear for exciting guitar parts. And I think he and Pete had an extremely deep musical relationship in that way. And he wasn't quite as committed to the politics in as deep away maybe as as Lee or Pete or mm. or even even Ronnie, but that's not to say he disagreed with them. That was a later Weaver who sort of stood opposite, but You know, Fred maybe didn't have that outward charisma that Pete or Lee or Ronnie had, but he played this really important sort of quiet, you know, musical arrangement role in The Weavers. And, you know, some ways maybe he was kind of like their George Harrison or something like that.
0: Yes, that's a very good analogy because... You know, if you listen to the Weavers on tour, or if you listen to the Weavers at Carnegie Hall, that first great record, which is now so prized by everybody, when Hellerman sings a solo, it's very different from anything else you're going to hear on that record.
1: Yeah, and sort of like we were saying before, you know, Weaver songs are sort of known for being folk songs that you can play with your friends. But if you sit and listen to the, you know, the parts that Fred is playing against what Pete is playing on a lot of the records, they're always moving. The, you know, the chord shapes are always changing. There's always, you know, variations in the phrasings. And it's, you know, he's really... He's a really thoughtful guitar player. He's, you know, he's not just a pretty face strumming a guitar.
0: <laughs> There's one song that I remember quite well about the future, Lies in the Cradle.
1: All of my days
0: were grains of sand never cared where they fell oh but the days that wait for me now have
1: something different to tell tomorrow lies in the cradle tomorrow has eyes that shine
0: tomorrow lies in the
1: cradle with a smile. A little like mine.
0: Do you remember that one?
1: Oh yeah, that was a, a later Weaver song. That was from the reunion. That was actually on the, the Wasn't That a Time in the yeah. Wasn't That a Time movie and then I think on the Together Again soundtrack, that was written for his son, Caleb, I think, who helped me a bunch researching this book. It's a beautiful song.
0: You know, the last time I saw Fred Hellerman, it was at Toshi's funeral, and he was sitting up front, and he had an oxygen tank, and he had one of those things in his nose. And so here you see on the front of your book this young kid. And then, you know, you go all the way through the career and you see a guy sitting there with the, with the oxygen into his nose and there he was at the wonderful Toshi's funeral. Let me ask you this, Jesse Jarno. Tell us a little bit about Toshi Seeger and what you've learned about her relationship with Pete.
1: Well, Toshi Seeger was the secret weapon behind Pete Seeger and kind of the secret weapon behind the Weavers in that Pete Seeger is this brilliant but extremely scattered human being who's just enthusiastic about so many topics and so many causes and so many kinds of music and Toshi was his ground control. I mean, she was the person that allowed him to function the way that he did, you know, playing, you know, a gig for a school in the morning and, you know, some political cause in the afternoon and then some benefit in the evening and then a, you know, whatever.
0: And then the Clearwater.
1: You know, anything that Pete Seeger accomplished in his lifetime as a professional musician pretty much including the Weavers, Toshi is responsible. She was the Weavers' first manager. You know, she was, you know, she was the one who who measured them for their first tuxedos, more or less, that kind of thing. She was just always there, just being the practical, I don't know what you, pivot for, for Pete.
0: She was the brains of the family. I'd get an idea, but she'd figure out how to make them work. We met square dancing in New York, and, uh, I came to sing for the square dance group and stayed to dance, and uh, then I remember she volunteered to help me alphabetize the big mess of songs that I had, and one thing led to another.
1: I wish I could have met her and hung out with her. She seemed like just such an incredible person.
0: She was an extraordinary woman. They came and stayed with us one night in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, and it was an interesting thing. As we all know, Pete built himself a house. And that house was one room, and it was overlooking the Hudson River, and it was a great place because you could look out the window and you could see the eagles flying out there, and Pete was so committed to it. But when they got to our house, which is a fairly big house, and I think Toshi felt badly, I would read in in an article that Pete had said, nobody should live in more than one room. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so Toshi must have known that because she was a lovely woman, and she, she looked at Roselle and I, and she said, you know, Peter, this is the house I always wanted because I could bring all my relatives. And she walked around with Roselle, my wife, and she identified every flower in this oh, wow. fairly extensive you know, system of gardens, but she also could hold her own. She always told a story about how she kept a valise by the door just in case Pete acted out too much. And when my wonderful producer David Gustina and I got there for the first time, she turned around and she was angry. And she said, you know, Pete has been very, very bad. And Pete said, yes, I have. (laughs) <laughs> and I never had the guts to say, "Well, exactly, how was he badged? So you could fill in you could fill in the blank yourself. But she was a major part of his career. And then, you know, she may have been his first manager, but they got themselves quite a manager. You want to tell us about that?
1: Oh, yeah, Harold Leventhal. Wow. So Harold Leventhal is somebody who I think Pete had known briefly through some of his political associations earlier. And then met him, met Harold Leventhal again when the Weavers were playing the village vanguard exactly at the moment that, you know, record companies were starting to get interested in signing them. And Harold had worked in Tin Pan Alley as a song pusher, basically, before that, but had just this incredible background where I feel like this is such a perfect story about Harold Leventhal where he ends up in India in World War II and naturally ends up meeting Gandhi, whose first question is, how's Paul Robeson doing? (laughs) And... Harold became the Weavers' champion. I mean, he was their co-manager during their pop years, but really became their confidant and just their champion in the music world. It was really due to Harold that the Weavers reformed after the Blacklist era in the late 1950s. He told sort of another great Harold story is that, you know, none of them wanted to, to reunite, but he individually told each Weaver that the other three had agreed to do it, and then they all jumped right back in. And he, really starting after that reunion, became sort of the center of the New York folk music management scene or something something mm-hmm. like that. Really kind of this force that helped a lot of musicians kind of go from being sort of amateurs to being professionals and the folk music industry as it were kind of built around Harold. And he remained all of their professional managers pretty much as long as their musical careers continued. You know, he was beats manager for the rest of his life. He and Freddie basically went into the song publishing business together in the 60s when when Fred kind of moved from making music to sort of being more kind of in the back end. He was Lee Hayes' guardian angel. You know, Lee Hayes was a troubled individual in a lot of ways and Mm. not always completely functional. And it was through Harold that he was able to buy a house and retire even. Yeah, Harold, Harold was a folk Buddha. You described him before as very Yoda-like, and you know, I think that's extremely accurate as well. Just hearing him talk, he's just filled with kind of wisdom and, and hilarity and just warmth.
0: He told me once that he had had lots of other offers to represent other people, including, as I remember it, Johnny Cash, and there was a whole group of them. And he said no to all of them, because oh, wow. he was I didn't know so because yeah, he was so loyal. To uh, Pete and to the Weavers, he just to this dying day, that loyalty just showed through. It was the kind of thing that if you didn't really know about the Weavers, as your book points out, you'd really you'd really have to know Harold Leventhal. And by the way, anybody wants to hear an hour interview with Harold Leventhal, you can go to wmc.org and just listen to the interview because he was a remarkable man. So, Jesse Jarno, let's go on a little bit. You said something that was pregnant with possibilities, uh, and I want to <laughs> explore it with you. You said that, that Lee was, uh, had some troubles. Lee, of course, had diabetes, and he lost toes and feet, and he would come out on stage at the end you know, in a wheelchair. Pete once told me that I think it may have been wasn't that a time. No, it was if I had a hammer, which they wrote together, kept him going financially for the rest yeah. of his life. What do you know about that?
1: That song was written in 1949. If I had a hammer, I'd hammer in the morning. I'd hammer in the evening all over this land. I'd hammer out danger. I'd hammer out a warning.
0: I'd hammer out love between all of my brothers
1: all. Land. If I had a bell I'd ring it in the mall It was, you know, for a benefit for the Smith Act defendants, people who are, you know, Yum. accused of wanting to overthrow the, you know, the American government through violent crimes, a.k.a. advocating for communism. And that song was considered too controversial to perform by the Weavers in the 1940s and even the 1950s. And it's amazing. You know, it's symbolic. It's parable-like. It's, it's all of those things. But it's amazing to think that a song that's so symbolic like that could be considered so over-the-top and radical So the Weavers never really performed it live. There's some very early recordings of them doing it. And then Peter, Paul, and Mary scored a huge hit with it in 1963. Such a huge hit that, like Goodnight Irene and and other Weavers hits, it immediately started getting covered by lots and lots of other people and became a, a legitimate global standard. Everybody knows if I had a hammer. There was a, I just saw there was a reference to it on a, the last season of Twin Peaks last summer while I was writing this book, which made me really happy.
0: I think Trini Lopez
1: covered it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it became a hit uh, for
0: him, too. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, the royalties from that allowed Lee to retire. And I I don't, you know, I couldn't talk to Harold and I obviously couldn't talk to Lee. Nobody ever really said this out loud, but the fact that the Weavers dissolved in 1963 at the same time that If I Had a Hammer was suddenly this huge global hit, I, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's sort of maybe subliminally Harold realizing that Lee didn't need to sort of keep going with this work in a way that was draining on him. So Lee was a lot of things most basically he was a contrarian he could find things to disagree with about with everybody he he would just open up any conversation and into endless analysis i'm sure being in a band with him was in some ways glorious but probably in in more ways probably a huge pain (laughs) you know i've played music with people and the idea that you know lee would just sort of break into you know these long conversations while while rehearsing i i think probably drove his bandmates batty in a lot of ways and in addition to that, he was an alcoholic. It's something that, that was part of his makeup back into the Almanac Singers. He got, You know, Pete Seeger kicked him out of the Almanac Singers. Pete Seeger asked him to leave the People Songs organization because he felt Lee was too divisive. Lee was a complicated and and very sweet and generous human, but impossibly hard to work with. He was born in the Deep South in the first part of the century the son of a minister who died when Lee was very young, which I think probably caused a lot of complications for Lee, and the fact that he did grow up in the Deep South. Something that some people talked about when I interviewed them is the idea that Lee might have possibly been gay and just was so deeply repressed from having grown up in the early part of the century in the Deep South that it just manifested in him being sort of awkward and asexual in a way, and that added further to kind of this complicated relationship he had with the world and with, with other individuals. But he was also extremely brilliant and extremely well-read and funny and sweet. And you listen to the, the Weaver's recordings now, their live recordings of him introducing songs, and they don't sound corny. They sound, you know, self-effacing and and self-conscious, Mm -hmm. and playing with language in a way that's very relatable and doesn't sound like the 50s. I feel like I could hang out with Lee Hayes and have a normal 21st century conversation with him as well, and he would be right there with it. So complicated guy. Did he ever marry? He did not. There's some stories that that came up where he told people that he had been previously married, that his wife had died in, in childbirth or complications or something along those lines. But it wasn't anything that there ever seemed to be any actual record of. (laughs) Interesting character.
0: Did he get into trouble with the QAC people?
1: He did. Actually, all four of the Weavers were were subpoenaed at various points, which was something that I didn't totally know when I started. You know, Pete was obviously the most high-profile member of the Weavers to testify. But Lee Lee testified two days before Pete in the same courtroom. You know, he took the the Fourth Amendment instead of Pete, who— went behind the, the freedom of speech.
0: First Amendment. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So Lee's Lee's experience was a little more uh, a little more subdued than Pete's, but you know, he was deeply hurt by it and it really it twisted him in a way that it had the really dark haunting effects in that way that, you know, being called in front of a committee like that really did have on some people
0: of course you do know that pete came very close to having to go to jail and harold harold told me that pete was a little ticked off that he spent so little time (laughs) while being held but was that ever the case with lee did he actually face going to jail
1: no because he he took the right not to self-incriminate you know he was a a fourth amendment communist which is what sort of derisive term for people who didn't want to admit to anything in that sense lee's jail time was i think purely psychological
0: Yes. Okay, let's go to Ronnie. Yeah. Let's talk about her for a while.
1: Yeah. Ronnie is such an incredible force of personality. Was she, in the modern sense of the word cool, I feel like she was maybe like the coolest weaver in a lot of ways. Just reading through her letters and her interviews and just people describing her, just her attitudes always just seemed to be so spot on and, you know, for the right reasons, both political but also aesthetic in that sense. She just seemed, she was the one that everybody got along with. She had, you know, an incredible voice. That was her, her in some sense, her public role with the Weavers. Con los pobres de la tierra Quiero yo mi suerte
0: Con los pobres de la tierra
1: Quiero yo mi suerte echar El arroyo de la sierra Me complace
0: más que el mar Guantanamera Guajira Guantanamera Guantanamera Guajira Guantanamera
1: but to describe her as only the singer in the Weavers, or you know, she was the female singer in the Weavers, is to be so reductive about who she was as a person. And even as a musician in the Weavers, all four of them really actively contributed to the repertoire that they were building and the arrangements of that repertoire. And pretty much every creative decision they made was, was really a group effort. And, and her voice was an extremely important part of that. And thinking about her broader career as a weaver, but also after, you know, you see Pete jumping from genre to genre or things like that. Ronnie would her muse sort of jumped her from career to career in that sense, where she was, you know, she was a weaver and then did sort of a couple of folk jazz solo albums, but then jumped into experimental theater and then sort of followed that into being a therapist and in different kinds of experimental therapy. Ronnie was a very early LSD therapy patient, actually, in the mm-hmm. early 1960s, and brought Fred into that as well after she had what she thought were some extremely meaningful experiences for her and, and what she felt like really turned her life around after a period of intense depression kind of near the end of the Weavers. She talked about LSD kind of revitalizing her in some ways. And After uh, Fred had a couple of years of, of LSD therapy as well, he he said similar things, at least privately and such. And her, you know, political vitality continued through all of these different paths in her life, where she was in some ways kind of the most politically radical weaver uh, in In their later lives. Uh, she was in, investigated by the uh, it the FBI, I think, or maybe it was the Department of Homeland Security. After, after 9-11, she was part of this uh, radical group called the Women, Women in Black. And yeah, she is an incredible person to just get to know in that way that you start to know people when you when you spend a lot of time researching them. What was her romantic background? Her romantic background? Yeah, was she married? Was she Okay, so she was she was married during the Weaver's period and had a daughter during their Blacklist period, Lisa, who's extremely helpful in helping me research this book and had all of Ronnie's letters in this amazing archive. She split with her husband at some point during the later part of the Weaver's career and much much later not even actually during the Weaver's reunion, which is when people, I think, sometimes pin it to. But she fell in love with a woman, actually, in, in the early 1980s and, you know, lived much of the later part of her life out of the closet. You know, she, she talked a little bit about the connection to sort of, I guess you would call it maybe second wave feminism in the late 70s, discovering the music of Holly Near. And kind of this whole women's folk scene that Ronnie became involved with around the time the Weavers were reuniting for the Wasn't That a Time movie, and had this kind of second career with Holly Near, recording albums and touring in the 80s, including some tours with Pete and Arlo Guthrie, and a cool record called The Harp.
0: Millions of people around-
1: Which is sort of like it's very much in the model of the weavers it's, you know four people singing kind of socially conscious pop songs and so that was sort of her the later part of her life but she was you know she was extremely you know once she was back in the, in the spotlight she was extremely vocal and you know as active as she ever was
0: so let's go to pete <laughs> okay uh, yeah uh, you know uh, pete of course is The guy who caused, I think it's fair to say, the split up of the Weavers in the end. You know, clearly he could sell out anything anywhere he went. And he left the Weavers, and of course he was followed by a whole bunch of other guys. It was never quite the same, that's for sure. So tell us about the split up of the Weavers,
1: and tell us about Pete. Sure. Well, you know, Pete was never fully happy in the Weavers, in some sense, at their most successful. When they were huge pop stars, they sort of made a pact to not play political benefits and to not sort of speak out in terms of anything that would would get them flagged. You know, that was the thick of the blacklist. And that was—Pete was really uncomfortable with that. He he really, really felt strongly about being an active voice. That was—his entire life up until that point was speaking out about social issues. So that contributed a lot to tension within the Weavers during their pop heyday, where he was not into that. And the others were, you know, they were slightly more comfortable with it than he was. So was it three against one? I don't think it was quite as simple as as a vote like that, but it did come down to to that. And I think mostly what it did was sort of manifest as Pete being hard to get along with on tour, where he was, you know— he was grumpy. The Weavers would be trapped in a hotel all day. And, you know, obviously, you know, you look at Pete Seeger's later life where he was playing like four shows a day, you know, going from a school to a library to a college to a concert hall. You know, sitting in a hotel all day waiting around to go play at a nightclub is not how Pete Seeger wanted to spend his time. You know, and that by the time the Weavers got back together in in the later 50s after the blacklist, he more or less refused to do that anymore And I think even that, you know, and after a year or two of the Weavers being back together, I think he just wasn't as interested in in the notion of pop music anymore. And I think there are a lot of reasons why he left the Weavers.
0: He told us, Jesse Jarno, he told us that the reason was that the others wanted to do a cigarette commercial and that that was too much for him.
1: And and that absolutely is true, that there was a cigarette commercial that, that was sort of the, you know, the explosive point that caused him to finally quit the band—that was in early 1958. But there were all there were other factors as well. Another thing that was going on exactly at that moment when they were recording that cigarette commercial was it was a piece of Weaver's history that, as far as I know, has basically been completely erased by all of them, their record company. and Nobody ever speaks about this. They tried to record at the record company's insistence a rock and roll single, <laughs> and it bombed really? miserably. It's a reworking of a lead belly of a, yeah, a lead belly song. It's a reworking of Take This Hammer called Take This Letter. Sure. Like it. You look at the letters between them, and it caused a lot of stress even before they recorded it. There were months and months of letters back and forth and rehearsal sessions. The other weavers really wanted to get back into the pop market, and I think Harold Leventhal Harold wanted that as well. And so there's a lot of conversation about how to best achieve that. And then Vanguard Records, their label, also got involved. And I think it's not totally clear how they came to be recording this song, but it wasn't one that they had picked or arranged themselves. But I think the tension around that, because there was a lot of fighting and sort of tense letters and stuff that I think also contributed to that. And I think the cigarette ad was kind of what set it off. But I'm pretty—my uh, sense of it is that it was something that had been built in, in him for a lot of other reasons as well.
0: Makes a lot of sense. So, you know, I was talking to him one time. We were walking along, and, you know, he said something about something being difficult. And I said, well, how can that be? You're Pete Seeger. And he looked at me, and he said, that's exactly the problem. He said, <laughs> it's the Pete Seeger thing. And I think what he meant by that is, hey, I'm a human being, and then there's the Pete Seeger thing. You get that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Pete was, I mean, all four Weavers were, were complicated in, in, in different ways. Pete was such a public figure where he was so, you know, he was just so out there and so accessible to people, and part of his public persona was being this enthusiastic champion of American folk music and of young voices and of you know, radical political ideas and all of these things that I think it, it it Sometimes it seemed like it would be almost hard to know him as as a person beyond that construct of him as a musician, and that's something that that people talked about. That you know, sometimes he felt he could be really engaged with them when they were talking about you know what key is the song in, you know the origins of the song, that you know things that you would associate with Pete Seeger, but then there would almost sometimes be a disconnect with kind of the sometimes emotional parts. Of his life and he maybe had sometimes trouble connecting with people over over things like that and I I didn't know Pete obviously you, you know you did but I think probably there was maybe some kind of friction between his his public and private lives that where maybe he he didn't always know how to deal with it Toshi probably didn't know how to deal yeah, yeah, with yeah, it yeah. sometimes the it's the point uh, you
0: make in the book right
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: And the book, of course, is Wasn't That a Time by Jesse Jarno. I love the book, and I hope everybody go out and buy it. Um, <laughs> you know, we have one common thing, you and I, and that's this Fire Island heritage, your right. parents and grandparents, and I knew them, uh, <laughs> you know, out there. And that was just serendipitous. I saw the name, and I said, well, you know, I got to ask about this. <laughs> but, but in any case, I used to go play for the group out there, which my mother founded, um, oh, wow. Yeah, and I used to go and play for the group on my day off from Camp Bronx House and went out there one time, and I was singing Abbey Yoyo. And, of course, I didn't know all the words to Abbey Yoyo, so I made it up as I went along. And I brought a Fire Island thing to it, which was that Abiyoyo was so angry that he filled the Great South Bay with toilet paper. <laughs> and the only way... <laughs> And the only way that that toilet paper could be gotten rid of is that they put ketchup on top of all of it. You know, and then I sang it, and I, and I left. Well, a friend of mine was, you know, months later, taking Pete for a sailboat ride, and he told him my version of it. And Pete, who had a long-term column in Sing Out magazine, mm-hmm. wrote a column about it. So one day I pick up this thing and he talked about the folk process and how this guy on Fire Island did this thing. So years and years later, Pete and I get to be friends and I say, you know, you once wrote a column about me. And he looked at me (laughs) and said, what was that? And I told him and he said, that was you? I can't believe it. (laughs) Anyway, he loved individual people. He wasn't the star person. He didn't relate to you because you were important. He related to you because maybe you weren't so important. And he always liked to pick up on that kind of thing. So, you know, his magnetism was something. I mean, it was just unbelievable.
1: Yeah, I mean, just that—just his accessibility was incredible to me. When I, when I did interview him, which was, I think, like 2006 or 2005, somewhere in there, just how kind of— even easy it was to get in touch with him you know i wrote him a postcard and he wrote yeah, me a yeah, postcard sure. back and said call me you know there was no ma- you know there was no publicist that i had to go through or anything like that we you know we wrote postcards back and forth for another you know month or two after that it was just he was he was right there he was so present as a human with other humans and it was a wonderful thing to experience
0: let's go into the communism thing if we can Sure. Um, you think that they were all communists, right?
1: In some sense, at some point in their lives, yes. But there's a lot of nuance in that. Pete was the only member of the Weavers who is an active member of the Communist Party for more than, say, six months, something like that. Where huh. He
0: was the only card the co- carrier.
1: He, yeah, that's my understanding yeah. of it. But... All four of them very much came out of that context. You know, Lee was, you know, I can't say this for sure, but I'm pretty sure Lee was too difficult of an individual to be part of an organization that, that required any kind of discipline or committee meetings or, you know, participation like that. He could barely hold it together in the Weavers as, you know, as as, as an organization. Lee was not an organization man he was not part of a party in that sense. Lee was not taking orders from from anybody, <laughs> not even himself. Ronnie grew up in deepest socialist Brooklyn, you know, her mom was a ladies garment worker and and, you know, part of the union chorus and that was the world that she grew up in where she was, you know, she was reaping reaping the benefits of of unions and the party and and all of that stuff and was like I said, part of her background, but I think, you know, she didn't really move to the right in any significant way as as she grew older, but she was not, you know, not a party person in that sense either. Freddie also grew up in, in, in that milieu in Brooklyn and I think did attend meetings as, you know, as a teenager. But I think, you know, I can't remember if he said this or he said this to his son and his son said this to me, but um but probably, you know, fell asleep in the meetings. He was not into bureaucracy. He was not into that kind of discipline. He was there for the music. He was a music fan, and he, and he believed in the politics, and he, you know, you know, he believed in the causes, and, you know, he wanted a, a more just world. But for him, music was the platform for that, not, not party politics. And ultimately, to bring it back to Pete, who is the most visible and identifiable communist of the Weavers, I think that's true of him as well. By the time the Weavers started really he had moved up to beacon in 1949 and left the party he said there weren't just weren't enough people to have regular meetings up where he moved and for him i you know i think ultimately the music was the platform and you know all of these ideas that had been championed by you know different political parties or movements were still important and still kind of the core of what he was trying to put across But ultimately, the rules that he followed were the rules of a musician. And that's something that, to me, keeps coming back, like looking through his history, is that, you know, he's political, and there's no denying that at all. You know, he wouldn't deny that. Well, he did, I think,
0: Jesse, for a while. I think this was sort of a...
1: Didn't deny that he was political? No, that he was a communist. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He definitely denied that he was a communist. Yes. Yes. That was for sure. And
0: I think he carried that around. I I think it was one of his... The problems when I asked him at the end of one interview I said to him so Pete what have you learned in life he said never believe in a strong man and there was no question he was talking about Uncle Joe and uh, Stalin. right and a guy uh, who was a previous devotee no use mentioning his name wrote a book in which he was going to expose Pete for having told a fib about that but I think that this was something that he had to carry and I think in some ways the environmental movement was his savior yeah Because that really made
1: a change for him. Yeah. You know, it's sort of one of those topics that you can invest in beyond party politics. And it's sort of, you know, this this greater human cause that we're here to save humanity. It's not just about this bill or or this funding or whatever. It's we're talking about the basics of the earth that we all share. And that was, you're right, that was an incredible thing for him to sink into, though a controversial one at the time. You know, some people thought of that as him running away from the issues of the day. But it was definitely looking back at that. it was really him engaging with the big picture.
0: and'll always be known for that. I mean, there's yeah, no question. He was the leader, yeah. if not the leader. He certainly was a leader. Let me just sure, jump back please.
1: for a second though is that you know, yes, you know, he in some ways would deny that he was a communist during kind of this, you know, the weavers era. But you look at the interviews from that period where the weavers do get cornered in Ohio, for example, you know, by a press scrum who are like, throwing questions at them and he doesn't actually deny it in situations Mm -hmm. like that he talks around it and like he doesn't confirm it he doesn't say yes you know i'm a communist stop asking but he doesn't renounce anything like that there are very few statements where you look at it and it's complicated in that sense but a lot of the time he he would really talk around it as opposed to saying no outright
0: I only have a couple of minutes i want to talk to you about the breakup of the weavers we talked Mm -hmm. about it a little bit before but i assume that for the three of them, not Pete, it was traumatic. We often read about the bust-up of the Beatles, you know, and how George Harrison wouldn't come out of his room, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) What have you been able to discover the lasting marks were?
1: So the breakup of the Weavers, I think Lee is actually the only person where it was traumatic. I think for Fred and Ronnie, they both felt that it had run its course, and I think they were probably fed up with dealing with Lee, the fourth weaver at the time was a young musician named Bernie Krauss, who went on to incredible renown as a field recorder and a pioneer in synthesizer music. But at the time was, you know, more or less a teenage understudy for Pete Seeger. And he was probably not the right choice for the weavers at that point. But he, I think, was not totally happy in that situation either. And he wasn't the only oh, one. no, no. So so Eric Darling was Pete's first replacement right. when Pete left. And Eric, by all accounts, Eric Darling was an incredible replacement for Pete Seeger. He sure. was, Probably a more technically accomplished banjo player than Pete Seeger. Fred talked about how the band really started to swing when Eric joined the band in a way that it hadn't quite with Pete. Rain
0: time, man. Oh,
1: man. I go down to the depot early in the morning for the sun come up. Eric was different from the other Weavers in that he was not progressive. He was not left wing. And in fact, during the course of the Weavers, it seemed like he, he actually moved further to the right and discovered Ayn Rand and eventually left the Weavers because he didn't feel comfortable in that context anymore, he was replaced by Frank Hamilton, who was a Pete Seeger acolyte, an amazing banjo player, but didn't there were sort of life circumstances that didn't allow him to stay. And then Bernie Krause was the last replacement. But to get back to your original question about their feelings about the breakup, so as I mentioned before, both Ronnie and Fred were actually LSD therapy patients in 1963, 1964, as the Weavers were dissolving, and. Through their children, I was able to read through basically their entire case histories as psychedelic patients, which is, you know, hundreds of pages of of therapy reports, which were really intensely personal, and I barely quoted any of them. It felt almost invasive to be reading this stuff in a lot of ways, and I felt a little mixed about that, except one of my takeaways from it, reading them talk through all of the really deeply seated things that were, you know, troubling them is that neither Ronnie nor Fred talked at all about the Weavers in their therapy. That was not an issue. The breakup of the Weavers, the struggles within the Weavers, any of that, none of that was anything that was weighing on them in in a way that was complicating their lives in an emotional way. I think both of them were completely clear on how they felt about the Weavers experience, which is that it was beautiful music to make, but man, Lee is a pain. <laughs> yeah. And I think he kind of only became more of a pain in those years. And ultimately it was it was Harold who I think kind of pulled the plug on the Weavers in a way that was Lee saw at the time as an incredible betrayal and didn't speak to Harold for, you know, months, maybe even up to a year, even though Harold was still his manager and his, you know, you savior, source, sor- yeah. savior, source of sustenance and income. So, in that sense, the breakup of the Weavers was kind of different than a lot of a lot of other bands when you see them fragment like that. That's sort of part of it. But you can see a lot of it in the letters that they're writing back and forth where Lee finds out about the plan to dissolve the Weavers and hasn't been consulted and is just furious. Harold framed it as denouncing Lee's retirement, which according to Lee was news to him. And it's, you know, it's hard to know who said what and when, but I think it was Harold's decision that this was, it was time for Lee to step away and to move on and to find something that would be maybe healthier. And I'm, so- I'm not sure he did, but I think that was the logic.
0: We've been in conversation today with Jesse Jarno, author of Wasn't That a Time? The Weavers, the Blacklist, and the Battle for the Soul of America. Well, we've talked about a lot of things today, but this book really goes much deeper, and you're going to really want to read it again. Wasn't That a Time? by Jesse Jarno. And so we thank you, Jesse. You've been terrific, and uh, good luck on the book.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I can't tell you how much I appreciate talking to somebody who's a fellow Weavers fan. <laughs> Our fathers bled
0: at Valley Forge. The snow was red with blood, their faith was warm. At Valley Forge, their faith was brotherhood. Wasn't that a time? was a, a, a time a time to thrive?
1: Been listening to Dr. Alan Shartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on the In Conversation with Alan series, or to order additional copies of this or any interview in the series, call 1-800-323-9262 or visit us on the web at wamc.org.